Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join us in the book of Hebrews again. Chapter 9 will be our focus this morning. We have uh, made our way thus far, and uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews has, uh, if you will, uh, used a lot of ink to make sure that we understand that Jesus is indeed the supreme expression of God's intention, God's plan. He is the supreme explanation of God's intention and God's plan. And as such, we must respond to him uh, in that way, that we are not to somehow uh, regard Jesus in less fashion than God himself regards his own son. So he has reminded us that Jesus is better than Moses and the other prophets, that Jesus is better than the angels who brought even the word of God, who followed the Lord and did the Lord's will, and that he is greater than all the trappings of ancient Judaism, particularly the religious trappings. He is better, Jesus is, than the tabernacle. He is better than uh, the Ark of the Covenant. He is better than the sacrificial system. He is better than the work of the high priest of the Old Testament and the uh, chief priests who work along with him. Jesus is better. And because Jesus is better, we should not in any way uh, turn to a second way or a, a, an old way is somehow that the old way is the better way. Jesus is the new way, and he is, in fact, all that that former way was pointing toward. Jesus is the one who makes sense of the old way. The old covenant is uh, not ultimately able to bring us to God, not ultimately able to reconcile us to God. The old covenant is not able to make us holy. And as such, he uses strong language at the end of verse 8, or rather chapter 8, and verse 13, when he says, as regards the old covenant, he makes it obsolete. That does uh, not suggest that the virtues of God, the holiness of God, if you will, the point of the old covenant is obsolete, but it is that the mechanism of following the old covenant is obsolete because a newer way, a better way has finally come and he is fulfilled, that, that covenant is fulfilled in Christ. So today we consider chapter 9 and uh, again he is going to repeat uh, some things that he has said before. I'm uh, grateful that uh, as I've said before that the Bible repeats itself again and again because that makes all preachers feel better about their constant repetition. But uh, particularly, we will see here a description of uh, the earthly tabernacle, particularly as regards the holy place, the most holy place, the holy of holies, so-called. Uh, you may have wondered in your life, I wonder what was in the Ark of the Covenant. There's, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, of course, is a box covered in gold. The lid is fashioned with the wings of cherubim. Uh, ancient creatures that protect God and serve God at the throne and the wings of cherubim were constructed on the lid 
of the Ark of the Covenant to come together over the mercy seat. When the high priest went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, he would sprinkle blood on those cherubim wings. They would drip down on the lid of the Ark, which has come to be called the mercy seat. And there he would ask God for the forgiveness of the nation's sins one time a year. So all of that is referenced. It helps that we know that and that we remember that as we read today. We're going to read the ninth chapter. You would want to know that uh, this section that begins here in 9-1 actually concludes about halfway through chapter 10. I have opted not to read that far because I really think we can get the point before that. We'll uh, consider those chapter 10 verses next week. Let's read beginning in verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. In fact, if you are interested, just go back to the book of Exodus, and you can read to your heart's content. Chapter 25 through 31 gives the details of all of those pieces of furniture and the details of the tabernacle. Don't do it now, though. Verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first or outer section performing their ritual duties. But into the second section, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation but i need to stop here how important is a conjunction in your life well i would suggest to you it's very important let me give you an illustration let's assume for the sake of conversation that your wife leaves for a moment and she gives you a list of five things to do she comes back and you've completed four of them and so she begins to celebrate with you. You did a great job on this. You did a great job on number two. You did a great job on number three. You did a great job on number four. And what is the next word out of her mouth? <laughs> it's that conjunction. 
Now, some would say that everything after the conjunction negates everything in front of the conjunction. That's an overreach. Let's not say that. It's not true. But it does suggest that that conjunction offers a moment of clarity. The conjunction is going to highlight something. The conjunction is about to emphasize something. So when you come to that conjunction, you know that what's about to be said is important. And I want you to read verse 11 and following, looking for what's important. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, for those of you who are cattle challenged, a heifer is a young cow that's never had a calf. Is that fair, Gary? Can I get that right, Gary? Thank you. Uh, that with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Think of the word probate here. In order for the directions of the will to be carried out, the will must be established, probated. For, verse 17, a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus. Thus. There's another conjunction. Thus. It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, 
having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Oh, that is a precious verse. My, a precious verse. So I want us to consider then these uh, paragraphs and, and allow us to, if you will, understand the, th- the three things that I believe that stand out the most in chapter 9. He is advancing our understanding of a way of life. He's, he's asking us what, or if you will, he's answering the uh, hypothetical question, what does it mean uh, to follow God? What is the nature of the life that follows God? And how does one actually apprehend that life or appropriate that life for themselves? And uh, so he's been answering uh, that kind of question throughout the book of Hebrews. He is rebuking them on the one hand because it appears that they are lessening their grip on Christ and they're returning to Judaism. We need to get back to blood sacrifice. We need to get back to the tabernacle. We need to get back to the keeping of the law and so forth. We need to get back to that. And if we did all of that and have Jesus as sort of our lucky charm or sort of our plan B or maybe even plan A with these as plan B, doesn't matter, that syncretistic approach of trying to take a little of this and a little of that and make it all come together, he is completely undercutting that. He's taking that on with a vengeance, and he is saying that is absolutely uh, a broken strategy. And the reason it is is because the old covenant is obsolete, Why would you go back to that? There are many things in our lives that are obsolete. Many things. The one thing that comes to mind the most for me is a rotary telephone. Do you know that my grandchildren, if I use the word rotary telephone or dial telephone, they have no idea what that means. No idea. Never seen one. Never heard one. They don't know what that means. Virtually all of you in this room know what a rotary telephone is. But we have some young people in this room looking around the room saying, I don't know what that is. A rotary telephone. You know why we don't use a rotary telephone? Because it's junk. It's obsolete. It doesn't doesn't do what all the improved ones do. It doesn't help us. Now, sure, if you need a phone that's just going to make a phone call, great. Great, it'll work. But that's where the illustration breaks down, by the way, because a rotary telephone still serves the functions of a phone. In this case, a covenant that's designed to get you to God is not the old covenant, because the old covenant was never designed to get you to God. Never. Don't believe me, believe the Bible. Galatians chapter 3 says the old covenant could never get you to God. So you're going to go back to that? It was broken, not because the covenant itself was broken, but because you're broken, and that's not the way to get out. That's, that, that's like saying, I need a 20-foot ladder, and all I've got is a 6-foot. Well, friend, that strategy is broken. You're not going to get there. So he is reminding us then that the way of life that brings one to God, therefore, First of all, we'll see this in plainly in verse 8. is not possible through the Old Covenant. Now, I could talk 
for hours, and he says the same thing effectively in verse 5. He says, we cannot now speak in detail about these things. We can't. You just don't have time to make sure everybody understands all the details of the tabernacle. But understand, in the Old Covenant, what he's going to say in the first paragraph, in the Old Covenant, there's a tabernacle with two major parts. The outer temple, or if you will, the outer place, the holy place, is where the priests are actually doing day-to-day work. But then there's an inner place, the Holy of Holies, and there the high priest goes in once a year. You know this. They're separated by this grand curtain. And so imagine if there was a, a, a wall over here, and you'd, you'd been a part of this church since we moved in this building 13 years ago, and, and there was a curtain over there. And, and we've been in this room for 13 years, and none of us have ever been behind that curtain. We've heard about what's behind the curtain, but we've never seen it. We've never been there. It would be a mysterious experience, wouldn't it? There's a curtain, but you can't go in there. And if you do, rumor has it, you'll die. And the reason that rumor is out there is because that would be true. So there's a tabernacle, and and the priests are permitted to work in the outer place, but they're not permitted to go into the inner place, the Holy of Holies, because there's this great curtain. His point is that the way of life coming to God is not possible through the Old Covenant. And that curtain pictures it. See, God is back there. In the tabernacle, God is back there. That's where the high priest goes one day a year to meet with God. But you can't go. And you will never go. You're not the high priest. And as long as that place exists, as long as that curtain exists, you can't go. You don't have access to God. Notice the way he says it in verse 8. By this, meaning this architectural structure known as the tabernacle and the curtain, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. As long as the tabernacle is your method, you will never get to God. Never. So the notion of reverting back to the old way is going to get you to God is a lie. The old way never got anyone to God. The old way reminded us of the holiness of God and foreshadowed one who would come and get us there. But if you don't have him and all you have is that, then you don't have a way. You are still stranded in the middle of nowhere going nowhere. So his point in these opening two paragraphs is that the way to God or the way to life is not possible through the Old Covenant. And so a return to that way is a return to impossibility. Said another way, if you would know God today and you would leave Christ out, then you will not find him. Now, you might find something that gratifies your flesh, that seems right to your mind, feels good to your flesh. You know, I feel good because I'm able to do this and do that and do that and feel like that God is proud of me because I do this and do that and do that. Well, 
understand what's the core of that, what's the root of that, what's really going on there. As Christian people, surely we want to do such things. We want to have that kind of attitude. We want to serve God, do God things, because that's the nature of who we are. That's driven from within. But for the non-Christian, that kind of behavior, doing good things and so forth, is, is <coughs> done for an entirely different motivation. It's not driven from within. It's, it's driven, as it were, from without. It's impressed upon them that this is virtue, and you ought to be virtuous. This is, this is uh, integrity, or this is faithfulness, or this is loyalty. And those are virtuous things, and I hold to those values for my own life. I trust you do as well for yours. But imposed upon me, those things are simply ways to force me into conformity with external structures. So in the Old Covenant, you have this structure. And the structure conforms people to certain acts. There's actually three sections to the tabernacle. Only two are mentioned. There is an outer section, a far outer section, where people could come and there bring their sacrifices. The priests would take those sacrifices. Some of them were required to be sacrificed in that outer section, and some were brought into the holy place. They take them in there and sacrifice them and so forth. But there, there are these restrictions. You can't make a sacrifice outside of the tabernacle area. That's not where you make sacrifice. You go to the priest. The priest makes the sacrifice. And the priest makes the sacrifice at the tabernacle. In other words, there are all of these confining restrictions that define what's going on, that define your path that define your ritual status, but they're imposed upon you. But there's no liberty, there's no freedom, there's no interaction in that way except as comes from within. So his point is that as long as that external structure is standing, then you can only do what the external structure is designed to do. Don't go back don't manufacture, don't recreate anything that doesn't embrace the true way to God. And that way is Jesus Christ, his son. Now, stop here a moment and reflect. Every world religion, every world religion imposes external structures. Be careful that you understand the distinction. Every world religion, they have these holy places. They have these holy buildings. They have these holy practices. They even have holy books. They have all of these things. Now, what does that sound like to you? Does that sound like Christianity to you? Or does that sound like the old covenant? I will suggest to you, friends, it sounds very much like the Old Covenant. And the Bible tells us if the Old Covenant of Judaism can't get you to God, I promise you that all these man-made religions secondarily to Judaism sure won't get you to God. Be careful. Be careful for yourself. Be careful for your children. Be careful for your grandchildren. Be careful for your friends. They're not getting to God. They're not getting to God that way. 
So verse 8 tells us that the way of life is not possible through the old covenant. And the old covenant, as long as it's your go-to strategy, is broken. That brings us to the second thing he says down in verse 12. Following that big conjunction, verse 11. The way of life then, the way to God, is only possible through the new covenant in his blood. It's not possible through the old covenant. It's only possible through the new covenant in his blood. Notice what it says in verse 12. He, Christ, entered once for all into the holy places. Once for all, he entered into the holy places. Now, I'll stop here a moment. You remember why? Why can Christ enter into the holy places? Remember, you can't. You're not a Levitical priest. Well, Christ is not a Levitical priest. So how can Christ enter into the holy places? Well, he's not a Levitical priest, but he's a Melchizedekian priest. He's a better priest. Because he is a priest that has no end. He's a priest who's indestructible. He's a priest who can actually represent the most high God. In this case, he can go into the holy places, so he enters once for all. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Think of that. The high priest cannot provide his own blood, or he's out of business. He's dead. The high priest can't do that, the Levitical priest, but the Melchizedekian priest can. The Son of God can because he is the indestructible one. He is the one who is eternal. And so it is by means of his own blood that he accomplishes this access to God. He goes into the holy places and gives his life and dies for our sins. This is the pattern of the Old Testament fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. The new covenant is not inaugurated by the blood of bulls and goats, by a heifer whose ashes are spread across some book or some piece of furniture or even across the heads of people. No. No, these earthly things cannot accomplish. You'll note again in verse 12, eternal redemption. I would think, ask you to think with me for a moment. Is it illogical, and I would suggest it is, isn't it illogical to suggest that somehow something done on earth is actually going to accomplish a transaction in heaven? Think with, that, with me for a moment. The blood of a bull is somehow going to satisfy heavenly redemption. The blood of a bull is going to guarantee your access to God. The blood of a bull is going to send you to heaven. The blood of a goat is going to send you to heaven. Does that seem illogical to you? If, that, if it does, I would suggest you're thinking rightly. You clearly are. Because the blood of bulls and goats cannot. In fact, it's a sermon for another day, but um, you'll note his verse, verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls, sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered without blemish purify our conscience? See, our problem here, friends, is that the blood of bulls cannot purify the conscience. They cannot. The blood of bulls can only purify the flesh. Now, again, we could talk for, for hours about this, but I would urge you to, to do a study, to, to take this under consideration for your life. We, we don't think like the Old Covenant 
So I don't want to belabor it too much. But in the event that you might be tempted to revert back to this line of thinking, this is, this is worth contemplating. What is the point? The point is in the Old, old Covenant, when you, you'd, you would sin or you would do something that would defile you. For instance, if you touch a dead animal, you are ceremonially defiled. You cannot come then to the tabernacle without a purification process. So in, in the Old Covenant, there are washings and there are sacrifices, meal offerings, grain offerings, blood offerings. There's these elaborate offerings set up. And you say, well, that doesn't matter to me. It doesn't interest me. Good, good. Don't go back there. Since you don't know how to go back there, great. Don't go back there. But for those of you who are curious, what did any of that do? It just makes you pure on the outside. If you, if you do these things that make you, if you will, impure, not, not immoral. Touching a dead animal is not immoral. Don't think purity and morality is the same thing. But you're, you're, you're impure now. You, you have to then go and you have to go through this washing or you have to go through this sacrifice and the blood of this animal then makes you pure and you're able to then continue in your relationship with the, if you will, the, the activity of God. But all it does is change your status. It, it, it in effect puts on the uniform. It cleans up the uniform. So you have to wear certain uniforms, perhaps, in your work. Okay, if, if the uniform is substandard, you know, there's certain things you're required to wear, and it's got to look like this and look like that. Well, if that gets torn or, or damaged in some way, you're out of uniform. How do you get back into uniform? Well, there's a process. It's the same way in the Old Testament. You get out of uniform. You become impure for the ritual. Well, did any of that change you? Changing your uniform, does it actually change you? Now, we can make a case for pride and all those other things. We, we understand all of that. But that's not the point of the ritual. The ritual is just simply to make you, to continue to have access to the rituals. To the, if you will, to the congregation, to the group that's going uh, along with God. So the way of life that leads to God is not possible by changing your uniform. It's not possible by washing your body. It's not possible by sacrificing an animal. The way to God must clean the conscience. Hear me. It is the conscience of man that condemns him. It is not the dirt on his hands. It is the status of your heart. It is the status of your relationship that changes and must be changed. So the way to God is only possible through the new covenant, and the new covenant is inaugurated and consummated by his blood. He is very clear in verse 12. It is by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. I've said this before. I'll say it again. If you leave Christ and go to plan B or revert back to some version of your so-called plan A, if you return to the Old Covenant or to anything else, you are denying the value of the blood of Christ. And I'll tell you something, friends. God takes seriously the notion that the death of his son is not enough. And you would too if you gave your son 
And somebody said, well, that's not enough. You would take serious issue with that. So it is by the blood of Christ that we are brought to God. And only by the blood of Christ. That brings me to the third thing. Down at the conclusion of this chapter. So if it is by the means of Christ that we are brought to God, then we wait for the final consummation, or if you will, the fullness of salvation in the return of Jesus. Notice how he phrases it. He says in verse 27, just as is it appointed, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. See, the way to God involves our continued waiting. We have access to God. We rejoice in the forgiveness of God. We rejoice in the mercies of God. We rejoice that the new covenant in his blood has given us access to God. All of those things are current. All of those things are true. All of those things are valid right now. But ultimately, we are not fully and completely saved yet because we continue to live in this life. We continue to work in this body of sin and death. We continue to work in a fallen world. We continue to work in a, in a world that is cursed by death, cursed by sin. We continue to labor in this environment. We are not fully saved, totally saved, finally saved yet because we haven't yet died, because we haven't yet seen the, the final consummation of Jesus. In other words, there is an event that's going to cross the last T and dot the last I. There is an event. Now, for those of you who've been around a while, you know that it's called the second coming. The Lord is coming back. And when he comes back, who will be waiting? Well, in the mind of the writer of Hebrews, the ones who will be waiting are the ones who know him, the ones who love him, the ones who believe him, the ones who cling to eternal redemption and the power of his blood to accomplish their eternal redemption. In other words, the ones whose consciences have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. You can use whatever terminology suits you here. You're saved. You're a Christian. You're a believer. You're a repenter. All of these are true, and they all mean the same thing. They're all coming to, if you will, to, to, to a, uh, if you will, an intersection in this verse. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. By the way, if you need a verse that debunks the notion of reincarnation, has nothing to do with this, but if you need a verse, this is your verse. The scripture says that after you die, you don't live again in any fashion on earth. You don't. Sorry. Instead, after you die, you are reserved for judgment. After you die, comes the evaluation. After you die, 
comes the judgment. Now the question, friends, is are you ready for the evaluation? Well, here's the deal. If you are clinging to Jesus by means of his blood and you have a clear conscience, you have a forgiven conscience, you know of your sin, but you're forgiven. You know of your guilt, but you've been washed. You know of your sin, but the eternal blood of Christ, the indestructible blood of Christ has washed you clean. You know of your sin, but your conscience is clear because you know that you've been forgiven. Because you are forgiven, you are safe in the evaluation. You're safe in the judgment. Or to say it another way, you are saved from the judgment. Why? Not because of your work, but because of his work. Not because of your blood, but because of his blood. Not because of the blood of bulls and goats or the ashes of a heifer that certify the outside of you, but because of the eternal blood of Christ that certifies the inside of you, which is the true you. Cut off my arm and I'm still me. Cut off my leg and I'm still me. The true me is not some extension of me. It is that who lives, breathes inside of me. So we wait for the fullness of salvation for the return of Jesus. We wait, we wait, we wait, we wait. You might ask, well, how long, O Lord? To which I would say that's a familiar question throughout the Psalms. How long, O Lord, must we wait? No one knows, least of all me. But I assure you, friends, that we will wait together. That's why, as a congregation, he's going to say in the very next chapter, Hebrews 10, 25, that's why we assemble together. Why? To stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Why? Because we're all waiting, and some people don't wait very well. They, 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 they run and play and get lost and caught up in barbed wire and thistles and briars and brambles. And they just, they, their lives become a mess. Why? Because we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting, and we're waiting. And why do we need to get together? Because we need to look at one another and say, hey man, what you doing? And you can't do that. Virtual. <laughs> you just can't do it. We need one another because we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. And some of us get tired of waiting or get lonely waiting or get weak waiting. We're waiting in a war zone, but we're waiting. Just imagine if you were some fighter pilot and you had to eject over a combat area and you're sitting down there and you've got a beacon for those of you who don't know that, pilots carry beacons, let folks know where they are. The good guys know where they are, so they go get them. But it takes a day, it takes two, it takes three, it takes four sometimes. Sometimes it takes even longer. But one thing every combat soldier knows I don't know when they're coming but they're coming and my job is to stay alive 
until they get here. So, friend, we wait. We don't go over to the side of the enemy. We wait. We wait for our people. We wait for our promise. We wait. And if it goes longer than we thought, we wait some more. Because the last thing we're going to do is hope in someone else or hope in something else. They promised me. They made a vow. And they're going to keep it. And I'm going to be ready when they come. Well, friend, how much more powerful, strong, true is the vow of the Savior who says, I'm coming for you. Not to deal with your sin again. I've already accomplished that. But I'm coming to save you from the prison you're in, from the sorrow you're in, from the suffering you're in. I'm coming to save you. Yes, Lord, come quickly. Come quickly. If you don't know this Christ today, we beg of you. Look to the one who's accomplished your eternal redemption. He's coming again. And we want you to be in that number. May come for us all. In Christ's name. Let's pray now. Father, thank you for your kindness to us as Christians. Thank you that you're coming again. And that you have instructed us to be busy while we wait. So Lord, help us to do just that. We are needy, very needy. And we ask for your help. Give us grace to follow you, to trust you, to believe you. Thank you for those who've come today. And may the word of God bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.